We are grateful that you are here with us this morning. Today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 25, where we um, left off last week. In the middle of that chapter, we're going to pick up there uh, with the story of uh, Esau and Jacob being born to Isaac and Rebecca, and so finishing off that chapter. I do want to read all of these verses. It's, it's not that many this morning, so I invite you to stand with me uh, as we consider this text this morning together. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padam Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red all his body like a hairy cloak, so that they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word this morning. And we pray, God, that you would enlighten our eyes, both uh, that that leads to our minds and that which leads to our spirits that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would speak to us today, that you would help us see hard things, but recognize that what this passage points us to is an almighty, sovereign God who has an abundance of grace. We thank you for that grace that you have extended to us that we recognize today. Help us as we see it in the text now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Church family, occasionally we come to a passage that really on first glance, we read it, and if you've been around church much, it's likely one that is familiar to you, particularly that uh, last little part of the story where uh, Jacob, or Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a cup of stew. 
It's probably one of the first Bible stories I can remember. I don't ever remember being told that story. I know it's short, but I knew I always kind of liked it. It was one that I've always, for some reason, pictured in my head from a very young age. When that's the case for us, sometimes we'll read stories like this and we'll just say, oh yeah, this is where Esau sells his birthright to Jacob, where Jacob and Esau are born, in the little in the, you know, paragraph before that, where Isaac prayed for Rebekah to conceive, in the paragraph before that, and, and we'll move on. But it's important for us to slow down here and recognize that there is great theological truth contained here in these really what amounts to three narrative stories that all point to the same thing just from a different perspective. The first perspective that we're going to see is the perspective of a man of faith trusting in the sovereign grace of God to allow his wife to have a child. The second perspective is that then of God himself, where we get to see the plan of God. I've used this illustration before many times when we were, particularly when we were in our series in Ephesians, because Paul does this in Ephesians, uh, particularly those first three chapters, pulls back the curtain so often and lets us see into the mind of God himself. And this text does that in its center section. Really the peak of this story is God speaking to Rebecca, about what he decrees. The third perspective is that of a man who is not of faith, but is focused simply on the temporal. His only desire is for what is happening in the here and now. He's not focused on the promise of God, but ultimately on a cup of soup and some bread. Now, we take these three ideas of man of faith praying, God revealing to us his sovereign will, which is unchanging, and then the responsibility that lies on Esau's shoulders for selling his birthright for such a... And we may think that the Bible is somehow contradicting itself. I'd like to just start this morning by defining some terms and helping us understand how we should think rightly about passages such as this. Some, again, may read this and immediately see a contradiction. A contradiction is uh, is when ideas that are diametrically opposed to one another, right? That somehow we would think that Isaac could change God's mind when God clearly has a plan or or that Esau is somehow responsible for selling his birthright when God has already foretold it. But we know as people who stand on the truth of God's word, there is no contradiction in God's word. He cannot lie. What he has spoken to us is truth. So some have taken to calling this a paradox. A paradox is when ideas lead to a conclusion that seems logically unacceptable. That even though they both seem to be true, when we get to the end of the explanation, we're unable to accept it because it just can't be so. That's not the way that we should explain these types of teachings in scripture. The best way for us to view this is what I'm going to call theological tension. A theological tension is seemingly opposite ideas that are made true in God. I know I've used this illustration before, but Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, 
described the free will of man and the sovereignty of God like railroad tracks and that one would stand in between the two tracks and look on one side and see God's sovereign will and on the other side man's responsibility and they would seem to be parallel ideas that could never meet. But if you look off into the future, way into the distance, those tracks seem to come together. And what Spurgeon says is where those tracks come together is in God. That these things can be true. Isaac can pray and God act. God have his sovereign will that is unchanging and Esau still be responsible for selling his birthright. All of these things can be true because they are true in God. They are true because he says they are true. And while we may struggle sometimes to see how these two parallel ideas come together, they ultimately come together at the throne of God. And that's what we will see in this story this morning as these perspectives change. These, really, it's, it's two perspectives with the first being divided into two. It's the first story and the third are both earthly perspectives, one from a man of faith and one from a man focused on the temporal. And then the middle perspective is the one from heaven itself. So let's begin back at the beginning where we see prayer and the sovereign grace of God. This is the perspective of the man of faith. Go back into verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac. Now, this is not the first time we've seen that. What the, the author of Genesis is telling us here is major break has happened. Anytime we read, these are the generations of, in Genesis, it is a, a major literary break. A new story is now being told. Abraham's son, I, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. So what we considered last week happened when Isaac was 40. And he, it says who her family was, who her father was, who her brother was. And then we're told this, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now, this is a theme we have already seen in the previous generation of faith where Sarah was barren and without child for so long. Isaac being the fruit of God's blessing late in Sarah and Abraham's life. He would have heard this story from his mother. Remember, his mother passes away. He's 37 years old. How often do you think Isaac heard the story of what God had done in the life of his mother? He marries Rebecca when he's 40, but she doesn't conceive the twins until 60. So for 20 years, they are married. And if we do the math, here's what we need to know. Even though Abraham in the text has already passed away, Abraham's still alive when this is going on. Abraham lives until Isaac is 75. So Abraham's, Abraham was around when this was happening. And how often do you think he encouraged his son? You are the bearer of the promise of God. You are the second generation that will become a great nation. Have faith, my son. Have faith in what God is doing. How often do you believe he heard this from his father? repeating likely the words that his mother had told him during his childhood and adolescence and young adult years. And so Isaac does what any person of faith would do. He prays. We're not told what he prayed. 
we're not told very much of Isaac at all. Actually, out of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Isaac is the one we have the least information about. Even this story itself is not really about Isaac so much as it is about Rebecca and the children and ultimately the primary actor, God. Only next week, there's only really one chapter in all of Genesis where we see the spotlight focus on Isaac himself, the least mentioned. So we're not told what he prays, but we know it is a prayer of faith. We know it is a prayer concerned with the promise because God granted his prayer and Rebecca conceived. Isaac's prayer is an obvious cry out of desperation and love. We were told in the previous chapter he loves his he loves Rebecca, he loves his wife. But it is also a prayer of faith. He knew the promise of God. Abraham reminding him of the promise of God and he believes it. So what then is it about this prayer? Why record this for us? Why not just pick up with God speaking to Rebecca in the midst of her pregnancy when she goes to say, why are things so difficult? What is it about Isaac's prayer? Why would the author of this passage tell us that he prays? Because it's important for us to gain this perspective. Because what we're about to see is that pulled back curtain into the will of God. And so where we need to begin is from our own perspective, from the perspective of a person of faith praying the will of God. Isaac would have been told it was God's will for him to have a child. He would have been told that God would do miraculous things to carry on that promise in his life. And he believed it and he prayed it. And the Bible speaks of these kind of prayers regularly. In the New Testament, we see this on multiple occasions. Let's just look at one quickly, 1 John chapter 5. The Apostle John writes, and this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked him. Now, I highlighted those four words there in the, towards the end of verse 14 of 1 John 5, according to his will, because people often want to leave that out. They want to act like God is some cosmic genie that we can go to and just say, oh, God, I need this. And you've told me that if I ask anything, you're going to give it to me. That's not what the Bible teaches us about prayer at all. Look, there is no intention in the heart of God and there is no promise within scripture at all that God will answer selfish prayers. The Bible doesn't guarantee you that God is going to give you every single thing you ask. He does guarantee that anything you ask according to his will, he will do. And that's exactly what we see here in Genesis 25. Isaac prays something that was according to the will of God and God, God answered Isaac's prayer because it was according to his will. Isaac prayed for the promise and God granted his prayer. Our prayers are far too often focused on the temporal instead of the eternal. <laughs> Our prayers are often focused on the kind of thing that Esau focuses on in the third narrative here in this text. We're praying for a cup of lentil soup. 
when really what we should be praying for is the sovereign will of God to be done as it is in heaven, so be it done on earth. How do we do that then? Isaac prayed, listen, this is the information Isaac had. My dad, Abraham, has told me about the promise of God. And I've seen it work. And I'm going to believe in that promise. And so that's what Isaac prays for. How do we then, New Testament Christians, join in a prayer like this? Well, the best thing you can do is pray the Bible. If God says something is true in the Bible, then it is always right for you to pray for it. If, if God says he wants to see something happen on in our world. He wants to see people come to faith and repentance. He wants to see people, uh, see the poor cared for and the marginalized ministered to. If, if God says that he wants the, the orphan and the widow defended in this world, if we pray those prayers, God will answer them every time because we're praying them according to his will. So pray the Bible. And then there are times that we say, well, I don't know what to pray. I'm not even sure, I mean, sure for Isaac, this is easy, right? We've got to have a child. Same thing, same issue Abraham, Abraham had with Sarah. We've got to have a child if we're going to pass this on to the next generation. It was easy for him to know how to pray. Maybe you don't. Listen, that's okay. You're watching this today and you say, I, I woke up this morning and I went to pray and I just had no idea what to pray for. You know, Paul in Romans chapter eight addresses this for us. He says this, and he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit, this is the Holy Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Listen, when you don't know what to pray, or you're not even sure that you're praying the right thing, know this, the Spirit of God indwelling believers is helping you without you even knowing it. J.I. Packer, in his book on prayer, says this, God fixes our prayers on the way up. If he does not answer the prayer we made, he will answer the prayer we should have made. This is all anyone needs to know. Don't stress about your prayer life. Have a prayer life, okay? Regularly be on your knees before God, but don't stress about it. Don't feel like you're doing it wrong. Listen, the Holy Spirit will help you, Christian, know how to pray. For Isaac, it was simple. For us, it may not have been. There may be times where we don't know what to say, but yet God will help us. So from the perspective of the man of faith concerning the sovereign grace of God, here is what Isaac does. He prays for it. Oh God, let us be a church that prays for your grace to be made known to the world that prays for your grace to fulfill the promise to save all that you have set out to redeem. Oh, that that would be our prayer, praying the promise of God, just as Isaac did. Story two is about election and the sovereign grace of God. This is the perspective of God. This is where, just like we saw in Ephesians, that curtain gets pulled back some for us. We don't get a full glimpse because in truth, we couldn't handle a full glimpse, but we get a piece. God shows us just a piece of what he has declared to be true before the foundation of the world. He had a plan. He is still working that plan today, just as he was working it centuries ago in the life of Isaac and Rebecca. 
in the coming of their two sons. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. The children struggled together within her. And she says, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? (laughs) Now, being a man, I've never been pregnant. That's a simple statement, right? Uh, Many of you have, though. And maybe you've had this moment, right? (laughs) Lord, why is this so hard? (laughs) Why, why? why am I so sick? Why am I so ill? And here for her, it was twins, right? And it seemed like these two did not need to be in the same room together. And yet they were. And so she goes to the Lord with it. We see here, not only did Isaac have faith, but Rebecca has faith. She doesn't go to the midwife. She goes to the Lord himself. And she does so seemingly from the text, independent from her husband. We get at least a glimpse that Rebecca is the only one that knows about what God is going to say here. So what does the Lord say after she inquires of him? Two nations are in your womb and two people from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Here is what God has spoken to Rebecca while children are still in her womb fighting. One of these is going to serve the other. And not just in their own lifetime, but these are two nations in your womb. One of these nations becomes Israel. Jacob's name eventually is changed to Israel. The other, Esau, is also, we see even in this text, Edom, which becomes the Edomites, which at times were friendly with Israel and times was in conflict with Israel, but was never as powerful, was always subject to, always dependent upon in the scriptures. The one shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Now at this point, she's still pregnant. This point, these children don't have a name. At this point, she has no idea. Is it the child on the left or the child on the right that's going to be the older or the younger? All she knows is that God has sovereignly declared something to be true. And that's how we should read this text. That the sovereign God has orchestrated his grace into this woman's womb and has chosen one of these children who are not yet born to be something great. God has obviously chosen Isaac. Oh, sorry, God has obviously chosen Jacob over Esau. But what then, this begs a question, what then is this sovereign choice based upon? Did the Lord just want the second to get it and then allow chance to determine the order? Could it have been that if Esau had come out second that he would have then been the one whom God would make into a great nation? Did God look then or into the future and know that Jacob would be the bearer of the promise or or that Esau would soon sell his birthright for a cup of soup or even that in Genesis 27 that Jacob would deceive his father with the help of his mother and steal it away? None of those things can be true. If we're going to have a right understanding of scripture, we must answer all of those questions with a resounding no. God chose Jacob. 
not because of anything Jacob did. This is not God looking into the future and declaring something to be true in that moment. This is God declaring what his sovereign will is and has always been. It was fully and completely based on his will. This is why God declares it to be so when these babies are still in the womb. And listen, this isn't the only place where we see God do just this thing where God chooses people before they are physically born. It happens both in the Old and New Testament on multiple occasions. Just quickly look at two. Jeremiah chapter one, verse five. The Lord says to the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Listen, Jeremiah was consecrated by God to do the work that he was called by God to do before he was even in the womb. God knew him. Before he was even in the womb, God set him apart. Before he was even there, he had a job to do, a mission to fulfill. Same is true of the apostle Paul. Paul writes of his own calling in Galatians 5 verse 15 where he says, but when he, this is God, who had sent me, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace. We see both Old and New Testament people. We could look at the life of John the Baptist. We see the same thing, that God is at work, not because of someone's merit, but because God has sovereignly decreed that he is going to work through that person. None of this was based off of who Jacob would be or who Jeremiah would be or who Paul would be or who John the Baptist would be or who I would be or who you would be. All of this is the sovereign will and grace of God reaching into people's lives. This is the drawn back curtain for us, church. This is what we get to see with our eyes, that God is at work, that none of this is chance or random, but it is a sovereign God working. Now, one chapter after what we had already seen in Romans 8 about prayer, right? Paul then moves on in Romans 9 and paints this picture for us of, of, of chosen and not chosen. And you ask some people and they'll tell you Romans 9 is their least favorite chapter in the Bible. They're like, I don't understand it. I'm not really even sure that it's fair. And so I'm just going to pretend it's not there. I know preachers, they just won't preach it. Well, that's not how we deal with things. And because the New Testament is going to talk about Jacob and Esau, I'm definitely going to go see what the New Testament has said about Jacob and Esau because it's going to help us understand what's actually happening here in the text. So in Romans 9, here's what the Apostle Paul says, starting in verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, so not on merit, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now that's not in Genesis 25, it's in Malachi 1. So the Old Testament prophets used this same idea as well, that God has sovereignly chosen by his grace, Jacob in the womb before anyone had done anything. We continue, verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Jacob, who later becomes Esau, or later becomes Israel and Esau, who later becomes Edom and the Edomites. God doesn't hate, think about this passage for a minute. God doesn't hate Esau in the way that we think of hate. It's all about perspective. This whole sermon's about perspective. And the perspective of God's hate towards Esau is from the perspective of Jacob. It's from the perspective of Israel. It's from the perspective of the chosen. Because for God to lavish his sovereign grace, undeserving on a heel grabber like Jacob, on an undeserving sinner like me, makes the fact that he has not chosen someone else look like hate. And here's what the Bible says. God is right to do this. He's right to do it. He's not unjust. Listen, we need to understand the truth of this difficult teaching. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He is God. He is the one at work. So he is not unjust in doing this. He is loving in doing it. None of us deserve his grace. Jacob nor Esau deserve the sovereign grace of God. You or I don't deserve the sovereign grace of God. So the fact that we have it shows that we have a loving God, not a vengeful one. The fact that any of us could be chosen to be right with him, to carry on his promise, as Jacob does, should make us grateful for that pulled back curtain and seeing how God is at work. Then the children were born in verse 24, when her days to give birth were complete, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Two babies were born. One was a redhead. Esau, that word sounds like the Hebrew word for red. And make no, make no mistake, the fact that he's a redhead mattered. We, we still, you know, there, there's lingering myths and legends and stuff about redheads. Nobody actually believes that stuff today, but in antiquity, they really did. Do, do you know that in, in a lot of Western Christianity paintings during the medieval time, Judas was always painted as a redhead. It was intentional because they believed there was something kind of evil about redheads. Do you know that goes all the way back to the Near East, the ancient Near East? I mean, there, there, were, there were Egyptian myths surrounding redheads. In Egypt, they thought they were witches. So the fact that he's a redhead already draws attention. And then something really, and that's why they name him. They just called him Red, right? And then something really interesting happens. Not only has you got this hairy, all red, screaming kid come out, but grabbed onto that heel is another. Grabbed onto that heel is the one that would be born second, but would be greater and stronger and the one who the first would serve. And they call him Isaac. Oh, they call him Jacob. Means to be taken by the heel. It can also mean to cheat. It's a heel grabber. <laughs> one, who's, one who's cutting at someone's heel. It can, it can have a positive and a negative meaning. There's the idea of protection there, but also the idea of theft. 
And we'll see those two things play out in Jacob's life. So here are these children at war in the womb, seemingly even at war coming out. Third, human responsibility and the sovereign grace of God. This is the perspective of a man focused on the temporal with Esau being the primary actor. But first, the scene is set for us. When the boys grew up, Esau was skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau was a man's man, if we can use that terminology. He was was a man of the outdoors, and his daddy was proud of that because it filled his daddy's stomach. Rebecca loving Esau could very well be because he was closer to his mother, helping out around the tent, staying closer to the house. That could very well be that his exposure was greater to his mom, or it could also be that Rebecca loved Jacob because she had hidden in her heart that thing that God had already said to be true. That the second would be the heir of the promise. And then we're given this story that must happen when these boys are somewhat young, but still old enough to have responsibilities. I picture them as teenagers here. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Again, that's just red. I mean, red man wanting red stew. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore it to him and sold him his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. Always wondered. You know, thinking about this is just as a kid. Was there no other food around? I mean, it, Abraham was rich. This may have happened after Abraham died, but Abraham left everything we're told in the previous, the previous chapter to Isaac. Isaac was also rich. There would have been servants that have been tents full of food. This could not have been the only food, but it was the food that Esau wanted. Esau had been out proudly hunting, comes back exhausted from the field, comes into his brother and probably with a little bit of a snar looking, you know, looks at him and thinks, I've been out here doing this and you've been in the kitchen all day. Give me some of that that you've cooked. He wants what his brother's made and he's willing to give anything for it. And so he sells his birthright, something he didn't care anything of. And he even says, what's good a birthright to me? I'm about to die. He, he demonstrates zero faith, none whatsoever. Esau doesn't show that he's dependent upon God to protect him. He doesn't show that he believes in the promise of God that is carried with that birthright, that he would be made into a great nation. He ultimately shows disdain for that, thinking it nothing, thinking it worth a cup of lentil soup. So he sells it. If Rebecca has kept the message from the Lord to herself, which we have every reason for the text to believe she does, then Esau still believes that that birthright is his. He's not heard that his younger brother is ultimately going to receive it, but he obviously doesn't think very much of it because he sells it away. So here's the question. Is Esau responsible for giving away something that the Lord had already decreed would happen? Is Esau responsible 
for what God has planned to do since before the foundation of the world? Is Esau responsible for how God has already said he will pass on the promise to the next generation? Yes. Esau is 100% responsible. He bears all of the blame for losing his birthright. If there's any other blame to go around, we'll see it when we get to Genesis 27, where Jacob, through a cunning strategy, the heel grabber, with his mom beside him, deceives Isaac. So maybe there's a little bit of blame to go around beyond Esau, but none of it rests on God. All of it rests in the sinfulness of man. So even though we can affirm that this was the Lord's plan from the beginning, Esau freely gives it up. Which again, we must ask, is that fair? Is is that right? Is that really how we're supposed to read this? That God has said, this is my plan, and Esau does it, and we're supposed to blame Esau? Absolutely. Listen, folks. If you're coming to the Bible for the world's understanding of fair, you'll never find it. From the world's perspective, God is not fair. I I recognize the culture in which we live in is obsessed with the term fair. And there may be preachers out there that will want to show how God is fair in this way or that, trying to appease the world. But that's not the text that we see here. This does not read to us as fair, that God would sovereignly will something to happen and still hold a man responsible for doing it, but that's what happens. So we go back to Romans 9 to help us further with this. Remember, Paul's just introduced this idea of, of Jacob and Esau to help us get this understanding of election. And then he moves on to, to, to human freedom and, and human choice and human responsibility. And here's what he says. You may say to me then, why does he still find fault? Why does God blame Esau for doing this? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, we have you, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Listen, from God's perspective, he is the molder and we are the clay. The clay is ultimately responsible. Listen now, Hebrews 12, who, which also deals with Jacob and Esau, talks about this, not from God's perspective, but from man's. We read from the author of Hebrews, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." From man's perspective, Esau was entirely responsible for losing his birthright. He, he and he alone is to blame for it. I find it interesting in Hebrews chapter 12 that it actually, the, the author there actually calls Esau sexually immoral. You know that there's nowhere in Genesis that tells us that he was. There, there's, there's nothing that, and, and there's more of Esau to come. But never once in there are we told that he is sexually immoral. The author of Hebrews was not saying he actually was sexually immoral. He's comparing the two. Because we would certainly place the responsibility of sexual immorality on the one who commits the sin. And everyone would. This is just, this is something that everyone can get behind. Yes, the, the, the recipients of the 
letter of Hebrews would say, yes, the sexually immoral is responsible for sin. So is Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. He was responsible, even though God was sovereign. So what? Just as the Lord, by his sovereign grace, chose Jacob to continue the promise, he has also now chosen his church by the same means and for the same purpose. Regardless of the perspective, if the perspective is that of a man of faith who is praying, the perspective of the drawn back curtain seeing the will of God, or the perspective of the human responsibility of someone focused just on the temporal, we must understand that God is working now just as he was working then, and he chose Jacob to carry on that promise, and he has chosen us today, his church, the redeemed, to continue to do so until Jesus returns. This passage isn't in your notes, it's Ephesians chapter 1. It's really where I introduced that idea of pulling back the curtain. We read this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We, the redeemed in the New Testament time, are chosen by God in Jesus just as Jacob, Israel, was chosen by God then for the same purpose, to carry out his mission, to be bearers of the promise, all of which find their yes in Jesus. Listen, in this passage, in that moment where Rebecca is crying out to God because of these children struggling in her womb, it made absolutely no sense for God to choose the younger brother. No sense whatsoever. Why choose the younger? That was not the way that it was done. It's certainly going to cause heartache and turmoil, and it does in the chapters to come. Why would God do that? Why would he choose the younger? God is establishing a system here for us where he breaks the norm so often to continue to prove that it is he that is in control and not us. And he is still doing this in his church today. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. For consider your calling, just as Jacob was called, just as Jeremiah was called, just as Paul was called, John the Baptist was called, we're called. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even though that they are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who, be, who became to us wisdom from God, righteous and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Listen, Jacob, Jacob didn't have to sell his brother or did, didn't have to tempt his brother with a cup of soup. Later in, in the text, you know, in, in a couple of weeks, we're gonna see where he, he schemes with his mom to deceive his dad. He, he doesn't have to do that. Jacob ultimately realizes these things and here's what we see in his life. A man who never boasts. <laughs> a man who is humble before the Lord. Because the Lord chose the younger, not the perfect, not the good, the younger, as an example for us, who most of us aren't wise, most of us aren't powerful, most of us aren't of position. <laughs> and that has been the nature of the church since its beginning. 
Because God, in his sovereign grace, chooses the weak of this world to shame the strong. God chooses the foolish of this world to shame the wise. Because he offers grace to us so that no man can say, I've done this on my own. If you're relying on your right standing with God to be something that you've accomplished on your own, it is a fool's errand, my friend. It is only by the sovereign grace of God that you can be made right with him. And from his perspective, he's known before the foundation of the world. Chosen in him, whether that will happen or not, from ours. Here's what it looks like. We call out on the name of the Lord. And here's what the scripture says. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. You don't have to wonder if you were chosen, church. You don't have to wonder if you're a chosen sinner. If you call on the name of the Lord today, you will be saved. That's the promise of scripture. That is the theological tension that we affirm to be true in scripture. That God knows what he's doing and has always been in control and is doing it for a reason. But that we bear the responsibility to come to him in faith and repentance, believing that Jesus died on the cross for us so that we might be saved, not relying on our own works, but fully and completely relying on his sovereign grace in our lives. Will you believe that today? If you do, call on him and be saved. Right now, our guys are gonna put a website on your screen. If you're watching with us online, you can go to that website and you can tell us, I call on the name of the Lord today. That's all you gotta say. Give us your email address. One of our pastors will be in touch with you within the next day, because we'll want to help you with that. If you're in the room, come find me in the lobby. Maybe you've gone through your whole life going to church and doing all the good things you can do because you think that's what pleased God. Here's what you need to know. It didn't. But you can become foolish. You can become weak in the eyes of God today, and he will lift you up because he is a God of grace reaching into our lives just as he reached into that womb of Rebecca and chose Jacob to become Israel. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that we're not in control because if we were in control, everything would be messed up. None of us would be right with you. But with you in control, oh God, we can know and affirm that your sovereign grace is still at work in our lives and the lives of people who may hear this today and believe. So we pray, God, that you would do that work in people's lives. You would regenerate hearts, make them new. And that for the believer, we would be reminded once again of just how powerful the grace of God is, that we who did not deserve it came to know you by your power alone working in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.